mergers, acquisitions, new partnerships, all are common ways that organizations seek to grow. And in most cases, the results are disappointing. Is that because of problems in valuation, integration? Well, don't forget about communication. Our guest helps business owners and executives prepare for and manage the human component of the deal. It's consultant, speaker, and author Jennifer Fondreve on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow. By talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers the network of people who can help you share the message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. And speaking of growing businesses, merger and acquisition activity is historically at an all-time high. More than $3.5 trillion in deals globally for the last five years in a row. And by all accounts, the trend will likely continue, in large part because there's a lot of liquidity out there. Companies, private equity, and family offices are sitting on stacks of cash to invest. The other reason is that companies are finding it increasingly difficult to go it alone. They need to merge with or pursue acquisitions in order to stay competitive. But while M&A is both a primary means for growth and a way for owners to exit a business, it often fails. In fact, McKinsey and Harvard Business Review studies consistently show that 70% to 90% of mergers fail to achieve the results by the end of year one that had been forecast. So what are the problems? Not figuring out the right valuation for a company you're buying? Not appreciating how to integrate complex systems and operations? Culture and people issues? Yes, to all. Our guest, Jennifer Fondreve, is a former C-suite executive who has been on all sides of the M&A equation. After surviving three multi-billion dollar acquisitions, she decided she had to show a better way through M&A and founded a consultancy called Day One Ready. I had the pleasure of meeting Jennifer during a two-day mastermind group led by Dory Clark. Jennifer says it's the human component of a deal that is too often underestimated. That's why she founded her consultancy to advise business owners and executives on how to better prepare for and manage that people piece. She tested her theories on the required people strategies for M&A and published the results in a May 2018 article in Harvard Business Review entitled, After a Merger, Don't Let Us Versus Them Thinking Ruin the Company. The fact that it went viral with more than 10,000 views convinced Jennifer there was an interest in and hunger for a more human-centric approach to M&A. And I see a lot of value for managers and executives trying to navigate many forms of major disruption. Her book called Now What? A Survivor's Guide for Thriving Through Acquisition comes out this fall. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to our big messaging show. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. I got to say, I'm thrilled you want to talk about murders and acquisitions, particularly because I think messaging is such 
a big part of how an M&A deal can be successful or can fail. So thrilled to be here. Well, you might not know this, Jennifer, but I actually am a recovering junior banker from uh, many years ago. So, oh, and yet we're still friends. <laughs> and we're still friends. How about that? You know, as you say, this is a really ripe, a very interesting area to discuss um, when you get into the practical realities of messaging and management combined. It's very well established, as we talked about, the most mergers and acquisitions fail to meet expectations. And you have a very interesting point of view on why most deals fail to deliver the value that people expect or hope for. And that came from, I believe you interviewed more than 60 executives and professionals about it. What did you learn? I honestly, I learned a ton and I'm thankful that I had the benefit of so many executives perspective. I wanted the book that I was writing, Now What?, not to just be my perspective, but to be informed by multiple points of view. So I interviewed survivors and practitioners of M&A. So CEOs, business owners, private equity, investment bankers, HR leaders, just to inform not only my thinking, but how I could advise companies. And I'd say there were a number of things I learned that were insightful, probably first and foremost, that the people piece right? The interviews consistently said they underestimated the complexity of the people piece. And it's not just from a cultural integration standpoint. I do think that that gets a lot of uh, attention. But another common theme, and it's what I highlighted in my HBR article that you mentioned earlier, they were surprised that you have an us versus them dynamic that emerges almost overnight. That emerges in three ways. The most obvious, as we both know, is our company versus their company. Who are these people? How are we going to work with them? That's the known dynamic, if you will. But there's two other aspects, the senior leadership versus frontline managers. That dynamic emerges as well. Oftentimes, you'll have managers who feel blindsided and believe that the senior leaders have dictated a strategy that doesn't reflect reality. And there's also a feeling and belief that senior leaders are getting an enormous paycheck while the frontline managers are now burdened with more of the execution. And then lastly, the other aspect of us versus them is who stays versus who goes. And what was fascinating for me in the interviews there is everybody thinks the other side has the better deal, right? Those who stay think actually the ones who leave are often more fortunate. They get the package, they can go on and do something else. And those who leave often feel that those who stay got the better end of the deal. They get to stay with the company. So all of those aspects were fascinating to me and certainly informed my thinking. And yet when you think about this, if you kind of take a step back, why would that be so surprising that people would immediately see a threat? Because the unknown is almost always a threat to us in whatever part of life that might be. So it's kind of like the old joke about, you know, someone showing up from the IRS saying, hi, I'm here to help you. (laughs) People might be a bit skeptical. So when some announcement is made that likely had to be developed in some secrecy by a smaller group of people, and then this announcement comes, we didn't foresee that we would have these people issues. Jennifer, like, well, why wouldn't you imagine that that would happen? Well, I think that the reality is that when deal makers, whether it's private equity, business owner, two companies coming together, the leaders of the companies and the deal makers, they're focused on the financials. 
they're focused on how to get the deal done. What's the valuation? What's the growth forecast? They're focused on the financials and not the people. And there's typically an ingoing assumption, we'll just take care of the people piece once we get through this. And that in everything I talk through, what I highlight in my book and certainly in my consulting is there's dire consequences if you don't consider the people piece equally as part of your due diligence and as you're defining the strategies for the merged company or the new company. We were joking a moment ago about the whole banker thing. And it was mm -hmm. years ago, Jennifer, when I had plenty of hair and I was working for a larger New York bank uh, at the time, Bankers Trust Company. And part of my junior banker role was cranking out financing pitches for larger corporate deals or restructurings or merger and acquisition activity. And we pushed a lot of those deals as an institution because that's how the bankers get paid. But as you say, lots of times if the acquisition, it goes a bit sideways or fails to deliver the ROI that was expected, people would say, well, the bankers got it wrong. But in my experience, you're looking in the wrong place to blame. The bankers aren't about integration or implementation after the deal. You know, they're not in the people part. They're about the transaction. So where should, if we're going to start assigning prototypical blame, where would blame reside? Yeah. You know, it's always interesting. There's always a lot of finger pointing when things go south. And frankly, investment bankers have been some of my greatest champions in talking to private equity firms because they know that they don't have that vested interest on the back end. That's not what they're paid for. That's not how they're incentivized, but they see when it goes south. And so if anything, investment bankers more often have been promoting me to deal makers. And frankly, Jim, I don't think that you can blame any one person or even a certain group or set of leaders. Obviously, everyone involved in a deal wants and expects it to be successful. It's what I alluded to before. I think they're just, the focus is so much on the valuation and growth forecast and the advisors, their task is evaluating the business, running the financials, forecasting the growth potential. That's why my position always is, in addition to the investment bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, I always advise you've got to proactively seek out a human capital advisor who can bring in that additional perspective early on, who can help you better anticipate what the people challenges will be. To your point on messaging, not only to anticipate what the challenges are, but how to communicate the deal to set the integration up for success. I see too often that, of course, you just have to communicate, 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 communicate. And you and I both know absolutely you need to communicate, but it's what you communicate and when you communicate it and how you communicate it that's absolutely critical, which is why I'm so thrilled that you're having me on because messaging is so critical. And that's why having a human capital advisor early on to help you think through the challenges and how you communicate the deal helps you to minimize or at least mitigate some of the risk that can come once you've announced the deal. Sure. And it's not going to be the volume of communication, as you say. It's timing and the specifics of it so that it's not just more noise. Right. You bet. And that's where you come in and your perspective comes in. So you, we've had this historical pattern of where mergers and acquisitions tend to disappoint, right? So there must be some familiar patterns and predictable ways that you can advise executives and teams ahead of time 
of like, here's where you might be able to buck the trend. And so you have this approach called day one ready. In general, what are the kinds of things that you would tell executives up front about avoiding some of those messaging challenges and those predictable people challenges? Well, one I should highlight, it's called the day one ready approach because I want to realign how people in the M&A deal process think about day one. Oftentimes, day one is seen as the day you make the announcement. And my approach is no, day one is the moment as an executive, a business owner, a leader, you consider M&A as a potential growth strategy. Because the moment you start thinking about M&A as a growth strategy, you change. Your thinking changes, your mindset and how you approach the business, how you make decisions even starts to shift because now you look at it through the filter of, well, what will be the impact of this were we to do a merger or an acquisition? And so first and foremost, I try and always advise to recalibrate how you look at day one, the moment you start thinking about M&A. And then the, the approach itself, once I'm working with executives, first and foremost, I'm always trying to help executives gain alignment on the vision. What is that desired future state? I'm sure, Jim, you've experienced this as well. Oftentimes, executives think they're all on the same page when that's not the reality. And you can't go into a merger and acquisition without being aligned first as a company on what you expect with this merger or this acquisition. So I do executive alignment both on the buying side as well as on the selling side to have that clear alignment around what do you expect in this merger and acquisition is absolutely critical. And then the second piece is defining the organizational structure required to achieve the vision. I think oftentimes, again, because they postponed the thinking about the people strategy and the people piece, they haven't really thought through, okay, well, how would we make this vision come to life? And I say, you've really got to think through what will be the organizational structure required to achieve this vision, defining the structure first and the roles needed and then the people who could actually do the job. And make sure it's people from both sides that you're considering, not just who you had in the job before. This is in particular, I advise the acquiring company not to assume that it should be their people that play that role. They've got to think about what's the talent that we're getting from the other side and how could they potentially be part of the organizational structure as well. And then lastly, and we've talked about this a little bit, I always advise to conduct a pre-mortem for the execution of the vision, right? Mapping out all the things that could go wrong and identifying the possible solutions in advance so that you can be better prepared when the challenges arise. That's interesting. We know about a post-mortem, right? It's where everyone figures we're in the coroner's office and examining <laughs> something that, that might not have gone very well and trying to figure out what happens. Pre-mortem that's interesting. What goes into that sort of analysis or that sort of thinking? As you alluded to, right, the term comes from, so it's in a medical setting. That's when the health professionals and the family learn what caused a patient's death, right? And everyone benefits except, of course, the dead patient. <laughs> so, <laughs> who, uh, who could not be reached for comment. Right, exactly. So Gary Klein actually gets credit for the idea of a pre-mortem. He had a 2007 HBR article that I loved. And that really informed how I think about it. So in a business setting, a pre-mortem comes at the beginning of a project rather than the end. And unlike at the post-mortem, right, in the beginning when you're doing a pre-mortem, you have your project team members ask themselves as a group, what might go wrong? 
So it operates on the assumption that the patient has died. And so you're, as a team, collectively asking what went wrong. And so for me, the benefit of this in an M&A deal discussion on the upfront is what are all the ways that this could go wrong? And what would be the solution for that? Because typically having just that conversation forces people to think about the people piece. And people aren't thinking about that when they're doing the forecasting and the financials. So I consistently advise a pre-mortem. Sometimes you might be scared by the answer, but that's a good thing. Asking at this early stage helps you avoid potential catastrophe on the back end. So consider all the ways this could go wrong now and what would be the potential solutions for that. And I found a similar kind of approach, didn't really call it a pre-mortem, but imagining even on the positive side of things. So say we're a year away, let's go into the future. We're a year away from this acquisition or this other major restructuring. And it actually did go pretty well, maybe not perfectly, but we were in that minority of deals that went well, that met expectations. So when we're looking back at what we did, what were the things that we're most proud of? What do we think were the things that we did that helped give us a better chance of success, right? Yeah. And frankly, I'm glad you raised that. I'm always looking for those M&A deal bright spots when it went well. Why did that consistently go well? That was part of when I was doing my interviews as well and equally included in my book because you do have successes and they're similar to the patterns of failure. There are similar patterns for success. Interesting. So let's get into, in this human component, we had talked a little bit about there's the whole messaging side of things. What's your story? What are you asking? What are you listening for? And what are the messages that are coming out? And it would seem to me that at least acquiring companies need to get a couple levels of the conversation right. There's that external piece. So you're going out to the markets, to investors, suppliers, channel partners, your local communities. But at least as important, and I would imagine, Jennifer, maybe even more so, is the internal message to your employees, to other workers. So when deals are announced or they're ready to be announced, what are the kinds of things that you believe the business leaders need to keep in mind when they're sharing the news, dealing with questions, dealing with anxieties in their internal messaging? Well, first, I want to highlight one thing that you said, which I think is so critical. I've said repeatedly that dealmakers tend to delay the the people piece of it and the importance of communication. I do think that there is a recognition of how do we communicate this to the market? How do we communicate this to clients? That's where the emphasis goes. And you rightly point out, you've got to equally, if not more, focus on how do we communicate this to our employees in a way that they will not only understand the vision, but that they will see themselves as a contributor to that vision. And so there are three things because frankly, you know, often as soon as they hear about the deal, if you've ever seen that Gary Larson comic strip where uh, what, what we say to dogs. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) What we say to dogs and what dogs hear, right? And the guy scolding Ginger, you know, you, you can't do this. You're in trouble. And all Ginger hears is blah, 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 Ginger, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I say that's essentially how the workforce first hears the news. And so there's either that or you can expect that the majority of them already know something's going on. So they've already manifested different scenarios in their head. 
of what possibly could be going on. So later leaders are mistaken if they go into it assuming that all of the employees are excited, that this is going to be great, and they're equally going to see this as great, right? Those who've been working on the deal probably have been working on the deal for months, if not potentially over a year. And so they may be already tired with the news when the workforce, this is new news to them, or the scenarios they've made up in their head are terrible already. So you've got to come at this from a standpoint of it's perceived as negative, not positive. So go in with that mindset. The other thing I say, and this is exactly your sweet spot, Jim, which is do not use the cliched jargony marketing language to sell the vision and persuade the workforce. Thank you. It is absolutely critical when you make that announcement that your message rings clear and authentically because you have to understand people already have in their head all of the language around huge M&A deals that have failed, right? You know, AOL Time Warner is probably the poster child for that. HP Palm, Alcatel Lucent, Quaker Snapple. They've seen all of these deals and all the marketing blah, blah, blah that goes along with it. So anytime they hear any messaging similar to that, it feels inauthentic and they have a really hard time buying the vision. So, you know, the third piece, which is clearly your manifesto as well, is you've got to be transparent as much as you can be. Respect your workforce's desire to know the truth and paint a picture of the vision so that employees can start to see how they'll contribute to that vision. The language is so critical. And I'd love to unpack that just a little bit when you were talking about kind of cliched phrases and stock messaging that's there. There's a lot of parallels in political advertising. I used to do some research in that many moons ago. And so the kinds of things, the charges, especially the negative stuff, it would be effective when it connected to the constructs that people already had in their head, right? So in much the same way, when there's an announcement or a rumor of some M&A deal or some major organizational disruption, I think people have, and it's reasonable that they would have these constructs in their head. You know, how many times have you seen, oh, you know, company A is acquiring company B. And by the way, we guarantee everyone's staying and we're going to hire more people. (laughs) We're not going to go through a cost cutting initiative. We're going to raise our expenses. That's where we think the value will come from the deal. So I think it's been kind of experience and just natural fear and vulnerability that people will have this picture in their head. Basically, they're coming for me. And so are there some common, as you'd say, cliches or some stock language that you see that at the very least don't say these things? Yeah. Well, and you touched on some of them. I wrote an article specifically about the secret language of mergers and acquisitions, what executives say and what the workforce hears. The number one, and by the way, this was equally informed by the interviews I did with executives, things that they realized, oh my gosh, if I could take it back, I'd take back some of the things I said because I saw the impact that it had on the workforce. And the number one cliched phrase was that nothing is changing. (laughs) The fact is everything has already changed. Exactly. So as an executive, you might think, and I say this, I do believe that the phrases are well-intentioned. So even though you and I are joking, it's cliche, I do think that executives are trying to actually appease or diffuse potential tension by saying some of these things, but it just makes it worse. And the number one is nothing is changing. The reality is it's changed already the moment you start talking. 
the other ones that I love are, um, this is a merger of equals. It's never a merger of equals. And the workforce knows that. The first thing that they think is, well, if it's a merger of equals, how come the other company's CEO is now our CEO? Exactly. That's always one of the first indicators, right? Is who's retiring or who's going to the board and going to be a consultant to the combined entity for a while. And, you know, basically who has the track to leadership, right? And this plays to your mantra. I do think that all of these cliched phrases are said with the intent of, I want you to feel okay about this, but people are smart. They see the cliches coming from a mile away. So even the, we expect minimum reductions in staff. If you say that in the announcement, you really cannot anticipate how things are going to play out. So if you say that, there are expectations. And then also people think, okay, then they're just saying stuff to pacify us. Of course, there's going to be reductions in staff. There's an expectation that there will be. So don't say that at the beginning. The other one that tends to aggravate people is this allows us to transform our business. And the reason why is oftentimes that's followed by, we've now expanded our portfolio. Well, if you're a company that's acquired, for example, a competitor, the workforce is thinking, particularly sales, well, we used to downplay to our clients that this other product was an inferior product. We told them we're a premium quality product and those other guys are cheap knockoffs. Now I got to try and sell that cheap knockoff and I've got to paint it as it's a great portfolio. It's more expanded, right? My client's going to not believe me. So all of those, how you communicate upfront about the benefits of the deal, you've got to be really careful to avoid cliched. And I say this as a marketer, marketing jargon. And I'm a marketer as well. Love my marketing people, but uh, (laughs) there are limits to our persuasive power in certain situations. And it's interesting as you go through even just giving that example about, say, the sales force. And if there was a combination of companies and they've expanded the portfolio, really looking at a couple of different levels where people feel vulnerable in that situation. The first is, let's say that you stay and you have a 50% growth in the portfolio that you can offer. It doesn't require 50% more salespeople. The efficiency in a the same or even a smaller number of people offering from a larger portfolio, those are the kinds of things that drive an acquisition in the first place. And the other I thought was really important as you brought up is how people talk about their company and what they offer. So all of a sudden you're wanting people to have a different identity in the value that they bring and expecting them to to go out and talk about, as you had pointed out in that example, the products that I used to say were inferior. <laughs> no, 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 really. I'm all about quality for my customers and you really should be buying these things now. So it's an important consideration. And I think sometimes people get so caught up in the efficiencies of the deal of getting the thing done and avoiding immediate flight of valuable people that they don't think about what will ring true in using real common empathetic language and listening to the people on the other side. Right. And that's why I think the phrase, nothing has changed, aggravates people so much because it says leadership has no idea what I do. If you say nothing has changed, let's use this scenario. Now I'm going to have to sell completely differently than how I sold before, because you're thinking of this as great news. I've got an expanded portfolio, but now I've got to rethink how I position our offering to show this is a good thing. My clients, I've got to retrain them on how I'm delivering and what I'm delivering. So again, messaging is so critical. And if nothing 
has changed, then why do the deal in the first place? Uh, <laughs> one other point, Jennifer, and as we mentioned in the intro, you've been on the other side of this, some big acquisitions as an employee. And so if you're not on the side of the executive level and the acquirer, what is a reasonable expectation, the mindset for the managers and the employees of an acquired company? I mean, certainly things won't go on in the same way. Do you have any thoughts about how they can approach this themselves? I do. And frankly, that's what inspired my desire to write the playbook because I went through it. And I thought by the third acquisition that I experienced, I thought, dear God, if people just had greater transparency on what to expect, the feelings that they would have, the changes in people, if they just knew what was to come, they'd have a better chance of surviving. And I was convinced of that by my third M&A experience. So the book really focuses on those three things. I talk about the stages of grief that you will go through because you really do go through stages. And I remember feeling myself just thinking, why do I feel so depressed? Particularly my very first acquisition was so hard. It felt like I'd lost a loved one or that I'd broken up with someone. And a grief counselor actually is the one who helped me think about it. She said, you're mourning the future that won't be. And I thought, that's exactly it. I had envisioned, I had a boss I loved, I had envisioned the role that I could play in the company, and that all changed overnight. So I try and identify and help managers understand that you will go through stages of grief, but you've got to get from denial to acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean you have to accept what has happened, but you have to accept that it has happened. And getting to acceptance And I don't try and prejudge how quickly you get to it, but you have to get to acceptance and see what your role can be in the future company. The other thing I highlight, because this is probably what struck me most as a manager, was that people change when they're operating from a position of fear. People who you thought you knew and could trust will change when they're standing on quicksand. It happens. And so I try and help in the book and the consulting that I do help people understand that that's going to happen. You'll have new bosses who come over from the acquiring company side, but you will equally see changes in your coworkers. So, and this is the satirical part of the book because there's a lot of dark humor in M&A. So I talk about the person who's the ostrich, the opportunist, right? That often in the interviews, people would say, oh yeah, that's the suck up, right? That's the person who's just always looking for who's in power and tries to suck up to them. You know, I talk about the Black Widow, the bully, all the different archetypes that emerge post-deal, and I help them identify who those archetypes are, how to work with them, and how to manage them, and how to identify if potentially you're being one of those archetypes, right? How to show up better. And really, that's probably the main, most important critical point is how do you show up? And the message that I reinforce consistently is you've got to know your value and demonstrate it in every way possible. Because what I saw happen too often is that managers felt lost. They waited for the company to tell them what their new role was. And my advice and counsel is always know what your value is and demonstrate that value and how you can contribute to the vision, show what you are capable. And also, you know, I equally say, be smart. 
see if whether your values are now aligning with the value of the company. Do they still match? Are they aligned? Because I don't advise people, don't hang around to see how things play out. You need to evaluate quickly, knowing what your own value is. How will that contribute to the future of the company? And that's all based on not only my experience, but the advice and certainly lessons learned that I got during all of those interviews. Jennifer Fondreve, really good insights from all sides of a pretty complex equation. How can people learn more about you, this upcoming book coming out in the fall, and how you work with clients? It is. So my website is the best place to go. That's jenniferjfondreve.com. So I'll spell that, and then ideally you'll be able to highlight it. We will have it in the show description, of course. Super. So there you can see both the consulting work that I do, how I help both business owners, private equity through the entire M&A deal journey. Also a book. You can sign up for pre-order for the book as well. And I'll be actually starting to share through blogs all the different archetypes so that people can start to get an understanding of that in advance of the book coming out. And you don't want to be an ostrich or a black widow or (laughs) any any of those. So hopefully your self-evaluation will be uh, pretty positive here. Really good, uh, really good insights again. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Manager Message Podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Jim, for having me. Thanks for joining the Manager Message Podcast. Hey, please tap subscribe on your way out. And I would appreciate it if you would take just a brief moment to rate and review us. That five-star rating helps other professionals like you join our conversation. Is there something important changing in your company, with your members, with your message? Hey, as we just learned, the most successful professionals take a different approach to developing, sharing, and reinforcing their messages. I would be happy to talk with you about it. Maybe now is a good time to schedule me to visit and speak with your group so that everyone can be a message manager. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com, and my mobile number is on the website, jimcar.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. And on the website, you'll also see an opportunity to get my free weekly message manager memo. That's about a two-minute read with tips you can use in your business right away. Until next time, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.